All right, go ahead and flip to your Bibles to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We're going to look at that real quick, and then I'm just going to build on it. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I'll go ahead and read that, and we will go from there. These are the words of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you are patient with us, because when we consider your ways, your law, and your holiness, we confess that oftentimes we are unimpressed and without the admiration that's due. Because of various sinful reasons, we are dull and bland at times, and this is not what you desire. So we ask that your spirit would give us right thinking and right feeling, that we would no longer be inept when it comes to wielding the passion that you have cultivated in us through your spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, whole body, whole gospel. Um, I, I think it's rare today to find men and women as passionate as David when he confidently fought the beast named Goliath, or even as undignified as David was that one time when he stood before the Ark of the Covenant. Few and far between do we find people who are wholly undone, as was Jeremiah when he confronted the wayward nation of Israel. And to think we haven't even mentioned yet Jesus, who threw hands with the money changers in the temple. Okay, so it wasn't hands that were thrown per se, but uh, you know what I mean. He had whips and he had them in his hands. You're not even allowed to use whips in MMA fights. So the reason that passion and zeal seems to have waned, I think, in today's evangelical world is because our theology of heart and emotion is thoroughly broken. We have post-enlightenment rationalism, which is repackaged and taking root in the church. We have clearly a revitalization of paganism and its accompanying fertility cults, which is infiltrating the church and our culture and spreading death and destruction. We also have all of the faulty presuppositions of Greek philosophy, which I'll explain shortly, that's reappearing in Christian theology, Christian thinking, and Christian scholarship. We have existentialism permeating the minds of the people of God. Rationalism, existentialism, enlightenment, all these things are coming together. In short, because we lack a biblical foundation on things like psychology or philosophy and theology, the culture around us we see is rapidly deteriorating and no one seems to know what to do. And so what do Christians say? YOLO, right? <laughs> so the answer to any worldview that contradicts the Bible is the Bible. That's the answer. The Word of God and the authority that it brings to every philosophy or psychology is the antidote to all non-Christian thought. Now, as Cornelius Van Til has so affectionately taught us, all non-Christian thought and thinking is inherently what he calls dialectical. And the dialectics is simply in philosophy trying to reconcile, you know, reconcile two opposing ideas. Um, it can't resolve 
Non-Christian thought cannot resolve or even synthesize seemingly contradictory concepts, things like the individual versus the collective. Um, in Christian theology, we can harmonize that, but in non-Christian theology, nobody can do that. They don't, they don't have a category for that. They can't reconcile the universal versus the particulars, though men like Karl Marx tried to do that. They can't reconcile things like faith and reason. So we have our faith, which, you know, in our world, faith is just that empty thing that you do. It's devoid of mind, your mind. It's devoid of your emotion. That is, sadly, the state of things. So only when we start with the ontological trinity, the, the person of God, the being of God, can we sort out any of those uncertainties. That's the only way you solve those problems and tensions. So the way to combat paganism and naturalism and all of the cults, we would say, is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of the triune God with all of its presuppositions, all of its authority, all of its logic, and all of its truth. Um, one of my favorite things to say to college students when we're out at George Mason is to say, so now you've abandoned logic. Because so much of the... Um, you know, sort of the socialistic uh, emphasis of things, and it's very emotional. Now, emotions are good. We affirm that. But so much of it is just, well, I don't feel that, therefore it's not true, or is true, whatever it is. So coincidentally, though, not just in our fighting and pushing back the darkness in, in a culture that is at odds with God, it's also the way that we combat the inconsistencies in our minds and our emotions. We have to go back to the triune God. We have to go back to the Word of God. We have to have that foundation. Now, since this is a series on the psychology of man and the role of emotions in our being, we're not necessarily going to develop and delve deep into these other non-Christian worldviews. We are going to touch on them to some degree to sort of gauge just how seriously they have affected us. Um, but this shouldn't be considered a full-blown treaty, of course, on those, think those things. I don't have time for that. We'll leave it to other scholars. You know, men like Rush Dooney have done wonderful work. Now, having said all that, here's the question that sits before us. What is man? What is man? And not even from Psalm 8 when Cody read what is man. Not just what is man, but who is man? Who is man? And I'm generally, you know, ladies, you're included. Children, you're included in this. Who is man in relationship to the world? Who are you as a person in relationship to the world? And not just that, who are you? Who is man in relationship to his emotions, your thinking, right? Your acting, your doing. Who are you as a person in light of all these other things? And more to the point, we could say, who and what is man in relationship to God? The foundation of Christianity and its expression in the world through man is the heart is the heart. The heart is the center of man. It's the inner man. It's the spring that dispenses the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23 says. The heart is what makes you, you. Um, here in Proverbs uh, 4.23, the Hebrew word for heart is actually lev. Lev is the Hebrew word. And all it has to do, its meaning is simply the locus of a person's entire being. When we speak of your heart, we are saying the entirety of what you desire, your emotions, your volition, your thinking, all of it stems from there. See, in the Western world, we sort of think of the heart as being the emotional branch. That's where all of our emotions are stored. 
and then the brain is our thinking sector. Now, in the Hebraic worldview, though, the world of the Hebrews, the heart is actually the source, the starting point for everything, including what you're thinking. It's the heart that encompasses everything about a man. The heart is what we could say is Grand Central Station for what it means to exist. Um, as a side note, the, the Hebrew worldview actually sometimes would describe emotions as stemming from your bowels or your kidneys or your liver, which is fascinating given some of the um, where we store our emotions. There's a physiological connection, which is it's just fascinating. So the mind, the mind was actually the heart, and all of your emotions basically came from your digestive innards. <laughs> now, when God created man in his image, he did so with a particularly unique set of circumstances and a particular context of it. Man is a creature, we are creatures, and we are the result of God's sovereign action, right? We didn't come up with our own existence. God acted, we exist. So there's no self-actualization. You know, you spend any time talking to people, pagans especially, it's all about self-actualization. It's I'm going to determine and direct everything, my world, etc. So there's no self-actualization here in the text. There's no self-directed um, existence. None of us in this room decided to be born, right? Throughout the, uh, you know, the pro-abort arguments about rape and all these other things, the existence of a person is predicated upon the authority and sovereignty of God. So because man was, so in other words, there's no evolutionary process, right? <laughs> that rules that out. Because man was brought into existence in time and space by God, meaning, therefore, meaning has been imputed to man. So it's not as though man, he can just create meaning out of thin air. He can try, but he will fail. You spend 10 minutes with somebody on George Mason or out in the street. Spend 10 minutes with someone, and they will thoroughly believe they can create meaning out of thin air. So when you ask the question, by what standard... There is no standard. Me. I'm the standard. So God is the great imputationist. I think that's a word I made up. We'll see. Spellcheck didn't like it. God is the great imputationist. He imputes meaning to the world, not man. And this is because man is created. We're created in the image of God. So meaning is granted to us. It's not invented. So there is no hypothetical or conceptual past you know, whereby man can appeal to some vague, nebulous experience. I only exist today. I don't know, you know, millions of years ago. These, these arguments is sort of vague and it's out there. That is, that is off the table for Christian thinking. Man was not, but now he is. And all of that is because of the great I am. That is Christian thinking. See, given the fact that man is subordinate to the authority of God. Man is the covenantal recipient, right? God initiates his covenant, and we are not the covenantal um, agent or the initiator. God is. Man's being, right, and his purpose and his psychology, it's determined, it's fixed, and it's unalterable. You don't get to decide those things. God has decided those things. 
So man is unable to ascend to this level of predestination power, right? Though he will try. You know, there, therefore, he's going to have to acknowledge God's transcendence. Or, what does Proverbs say? Those who hate me love what? Death. Either man acknowledges his transcendence of God, or he's suicidal. That's the only, those are the only options. So the other privilege we see in Genesis 1 of being created in the image of God is the fact that man was created upright. Man was created upright. Uh, he was made righteous. Man was made holy. Man was made good. Man was not an accident, nor was he self-created in some sort of neutral existence. Man was and is in covenant with God, and this means that he was mature. So in all of our preaching and all of our um, uh, you know, proclamation of the gospel, not just to the world, but even to ourselves, we need to remember that there's a presupposition attached to this. We didn't, we're not self-created. We're not the authority. We're all in submission and covenant with God. So the unbeliever, the pagan, they are covenant breakers. They're not covenant bystanders. So man, being mature and in covenant with God, man is held responsible Man is held responsible for his actions. He cannot blame his environment or his circumstances uh, or on anything other than himself. He is a person. He is created in the image of God. He is accountable, and he is liable to the courts of heaven. Again, this is Christian thinking. Now, <clears throat> given the fact that all men and women, all children, are made in the, equally in the image of God, I might add equally, we can also say that our existence is good. Our existence is good. What is normal and healthy are things like righteousness and peace, holiness and wisdom. God is good. Our existence is entirely derived from His goodness. So the normal pattern, the normal pattern for human existence is purpose and dominion and emotional and physical health. That's the aim of God. See, it's not, as some of the um, Sartrean existentialists, John Paul Sartre was um, an existentialist, uh, and I might add a heavily influential one. It's not that existence, because he would say existence precedes essence. You exist, and then you get to determine for yourself what you know, your world is like. That's why you see things. You go through D.C., and you'll see the signs, you know, live your truth. That's paganism. That's existentialism. Your existence precedes your essence. That is non-biblical thought. Rather, imputation from God governs and precedes essence, and thus existence. See, because our essence, who we are, is tied to the being and nature of God. The unbeliever doesn't know that. They don't care about that. But they have to deal with that reality. Their existence is there because of God, not themselves. See, God is, and we as a consequence are. That's the order. God predestines, we respond. That's the train of thought. Now, we don't, as we know, we don't have the freedom and the authority to create our own existence. This desire for usurpation is a result of the fall. That's what you know, non-Christian thought is. It's trying to usurp God. So we have the right and the freedom to do one of two things. Either we will bend the knee to God, or we will stand up straight and we will clench our fists, and we will boldly say no to Him. Those are the options. 
See, we are not ultimately free to unilaterally declare ourselves to be like God, right? Knowing and determining good and evil. That's Genesis 3.5. We're not free to do that. We will try, but we will commit suicide. That's how it works. So we are confined to God's self-revelation, and this confinement is a feature. It's not a bug. It's a feature of living in God's world. We are confined to his revelation, and it's not a problem. Now, the last thing I want to do is, the last thing I want to focus on as it pertains to the image of God, particularly, has everything to do with our calling, our task of dominion. There is no proper reconstruction of the heart by the Spirit until we come to grips with this reality. You and I are creatures of the Creator. We are ordered. This is not a suggestion. We are ordered to exercise dominion, subduing the earth through restoring men and women and institutions to proper obedience to the King, thus making it fit for the kingdom. That is an order. That is a command. So we are quite literally in the business of renovating the cosmos. And there are multiple ways we do that. We build a social order. We preach. We proclaim. um, We educate our children. All of that. That's the faith for all of life, right? But dominion, dominion we know is frustrated by sin. And since humanist psychology won't deal in terms of sin and ethics, it is helpless to put man back on track towards proper dominion and purpose. And thus the person is stuck in frustration with no relief in sight. You can't go to Freud to get help. You can't do it. You can't go to the pagan philosophers to get help. No one is going to point you back to your calling and dominion. All of you, children, listen, all of you too, you have a purpose for the kingdom of God. And your job is to figure that out. And some of you, you are... you. I know this because Eli and O'Reilly, you guys do this. You guys collect rocks. And they're not just rocks that randomly showed up. They are rocks because God takes pleasure in making rocks. And you get to do that for the glory of God. And who knows? Maybe you'll be a professional rock collector. I don't know if that's a thing. Maybe it is. It could be. <laughs> now, all of this stuff, when we, turn, when, when we think about our emotions and humanist psychology... All, all of this is because humanist versions do not recognize the authority of God. It rejects the creator-creature distinction. It leaves man without hope and healing in the world. It leaves man without restoration. All of these secular philosophies do nothing to make you whole because it's inept to do it. It's impossible. It's powerless. It's impotent. So man's task of dominion, <clears throat> when it's restored in Christ, gives man a purpose outside of himself, and thus it removes any precondition for selfishness and pride. When you look, I love what Chesterton said. When you talk to an unbeliever, he said, you really want to make them mad? D- don't, don't necessarily start with their sin. I mean, there's you know, context for that. But he's like, you really want to anger man? Tell them they're sons of God. Because that's, that's the start of it all. They have rejected wholesale their being made in the image of God. And we have to convince them and reason that they are made in the image of God. And that's where our thinking and our emotional health starts from too. We have to know this. Now, when we speak of reconstructing the heart and developing a theology of motion, 
of emotion, it's important for us to hold these distinctions. The Western world, which is obviously influenced by Greek philosophy, oftentimes likes to play the dualism game, right? Segregating man's ontology, his being, his existence, by relegating one aspect of it to a particular organ. Here's what I mean. Because of the influence of the Enlightenment, which again, that's just a reintroduction of Greek philosophy, the Enlightenment happened in the 1700s. Because of that influence, man has forced to, he's forced to fall back on all these faulty presuppositions, all these faulty dialectics. Let me explain. For Plato, Plato and not Plato, that's something else, children. Plato was a Greek philosopher who lived, you know, 2,500 years ago. For Plato and Aristotle and much of the Grecian world, there was this great chasm between man as an idea and man as matter. That's the dualistic thinking of Greek philosophy. Um, you might call it form versus matter. Okay, bear with me. There is man in his physical body with all of its lusts and impulses and passions and desires. That's your physical body. And then for the Greeks, there was this metaphysical man, this idea of man, this, this conceptual idea of man, this, this the ideas and abstractions. And for, the, for Plato and all of those who followed him, this was obviously an irresolvable problem. There is no synthesis of the two ideas. You can't. The only way out is to embrace the concept of man and reject the physical nature of man. So here's how this plays out. So you're supposed to suppress your emotions, suppress them like a beach ball under the water, suppress your emotions, and don't let desires shape you. That's Greek philosophy. Don't let your desires. Stop being so emotional. Women, why are you so emotional? Those are, that's Greek philosophy being played out before your eyes as if men are not emotional, right? Oh, we're men. We just grunt and don't cry, right? That's, all of that's in the church. It's Greek philosophy, though. So suppress your feelings, right? Stick to the metaphysical postulations, right? Things like, have you ever been told mind over matter? That's Greek philosophy. See, in this worldview, the material, your physical body, your actual you know, sunburn and all, <laughs> your physical body is downplayed and thus it's suffocated under the weight of man's thinking. So th thus you have the Stoics, the Greek Stoics. They, they tamed their desire for pleasure altogether. You're not supposed to have fun. You're not supposed to be happy. Don't exhibit any sort of passion in the world. Just stuff it. And then you have the Epicureans. They loved pleasure. They loved those things. They loved to indulge themselves in these things, but they believed it needed to be tempered to some degree. After all, you can't just go crazy. See, for the latter, the only way to achieve what they called our, um, artaraxia or tranquility, the state of tranquility, um, the only way to do that is to, to keep your desires and emotions in constant check. So the bottom line for the Greek philosophers, the philosopher kings, they couldn't reconcile these ideas at all so they made their choice. Here was their choice. The material is bad. The spiritual is good. That's why you get dispensationalism and this escapist theology. This, the, don't you dare think, men, that your job has anything to do with the kingdom. 
that's Greek philosophy being played out before you. Right? Plumbing toilets, cutting down trees, that's just material nonsense. You should just feel. Right? Don't, don't worry about, feel good about God. That's one of the errors of the, the private time, me and my private time with God. Should you have time with God? Guess what? You are always at time with God. 24-7. Do you need to pray more? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. But don't think that somehow you taking five minutes to pray is any more righteous than you changing a diaper. That's the problem of Greek philosophy. See, in the pagan construction of the world, the nature of being in anthropology, in man, is rooted in naturalism. We're all just evolved pond scum, right? We're a product of our environment. We somehow miraculously evolved and transitioned um, from cellular goo to somehow this epistemological self-consciousness where we think and we're like enlightened. But that is, that's not true. In Christian theology, our construction of the world rests in the fact that we're not a product of time and chance, right? Rather, we're a product of the living God. Man is made in the image of God. His being is predetermined. It's already there. It is not left to chance and chaos in the environment. And I think that getting these two things right is everything. Everything for dealing with our emotions, handling depression, handling addiction, handling trials and debacles and all the pain and suffering that comes with all of those things of despondency and you name it. All of it has to be approached from the latter category, not the first, Christian theology category. You are not a product of your environment. Some of you had really crappy upbringings. You're not a product of your environment. You're not. You're made in the image of God. So all, I think, though, because of the, this platonic, neoplatonic dualism, the Greek philosophy stuff, the ideas about the world, Christians, I think, have largely neglected in, in, in almost every area of our existence the need for understanding our environment. So, so don't discard the material world right, altogether. You know, you, I know you've heard this, Jordan. Um, you know, you're supposed to set your mind on things above. Therefore, we don't pursue justice. <laughs> we don't pursue those things. But we should embrace our environment and filter it through this proper theology. Which means that we have to consider family of origin issues. We should, we should think about the impact of government education. Most of us adults in here went through public school education. That shapes you. That molds you. Some of us were never taught how to deal with conflict with our parents. So we struggle with it. Like all of those things do shape us. They, they affect us. So we have to deal with all of, these, all of these things. We have to deal with the trauma that you've experienced in your life. There's a secular, non-Christian, pagan guy. I was just talking to Joel about this. He's, he does a drug rehab center in Vancouver. And he has, he, he's like spewing Christian theology. He just doesn't know it. But he's talking about like how addictions are rooted in traumatic events. And how like things happen to us and then it like perpetuates itself through it manifests itself through these other things so we have to deal with that we have to deal with the hurt we have to deal with the fact that you've probably been betrayed by someone in your life we have to deal with the rejection you have to deal with the feelings of being unloved or unwanted we have to deal with the pain so like it or not they mold us they shape us they don't define us 
They don't define us. They impact us, but they don't define us. We are made in the image of God. We have been planted here to grow and mature and reflect God's thinking, God's feeling, God's purposes. That is our task. So don't reject the world. Don't reject the world. It's easy. I get it. The, you know, the, the hen house has been overrun by wolves. I get it. But don't reject the world. See the world as broken. See it as in need of renovation and reconstruction. And you should also see yourself that way. See, what started as form versus matter in the Greeks, fast forward to the medieval times, it turned into nature versus grace. And then it turned into you know, reason and science over here versus faith over here. That's the enlightenment. This is the history and trajectory of it. And here we are today. And the fruit of all of this pagan thinking is the belief that your emotions can't be trusted. You ever been told that? Your emotions can't be trusted. Right? The, all of that is pagan thinking. Your desires, they're inherently evil. Right? So don't have desires. And I think the only way forward, in that worldview, the only way forward in the natural outcome is exalt the mind. See, the Reformed world has been particularly unhelpful in promulgating Christian rationalism. This elevation of the mind over the emotions. Is it biblical? The short answer is no. The long answer, Jordan? No. <laughs> we'll unpack that as we go. Um, one final thing needs to be said. And please get this, because it, I, think it's, I think this is the silver bullet, if you will. The great antithesis of human history, you know, God and rebellion, the great antithesis of human history, as it's sovereignly orchestrated by God, has been and will always be ethical. Okay, it's sin versus grace. It's the autonomy of man versus the theonomy of God. Okay, the, the antithesis is never metaphysical. It's never conceptual. It's never conceptual versus material, right? It's never you have to, have, having to decide if I should think myself out of how I feel. And there are things we'll discover as we, we need to work on. But it's never that. The issue is always going to be ethics. Is the thing, whether it's emotions or the pagan world around us or homeschooling your children, the issue is always going to be, is it in line with the law word of God or is it a product of man's autonomy? Is the thing sinful or is it a part of the holiness of God? It's never material versus conceptual. And the reason is because, again, we're made in the image of God. And Jesus Christ has come to restore that image. We were created with a whole body, right? And we have a whole gospel to bring everything to health. So why should we view man as a whole creature? Well, here's why. We confessed it in the Chalcedonian Creed. Why should you believe yourself to be a whole body, a whole-bodied person, not having to fight one over the other? Here's why. Because Jesus is both God and man, the transcendent has become imminent. He is distinct, yet he's near. Whole body, whole gospel. We don't have to choose our minds over our emotions. We don't have to choose to rapture ourselves out of the physical world. In Christ, we have it all. We have it all. We are complete. 
And because Jesus has come and unleashed his gospel on the created order, we can be assured that God does not want your emotions to be subdued and stuffed so that your mind can be the only thing in operation. He wants your emotions. Here's what God wants from your emotions. He wants your emotions to be cleaned up and then let loose. Clean them up and then let them loose. That's why scripture says to be angry, but don't sin, right? Ephesians 4. Um, Anger is a powerful emotion. You can be angry at your child unrighteously, but you can also be angry at the abortion mill because of the arrogance of the doctor. One's sinful, potentially, right? The other one is the most righteous anger you could have. So it's not intrinsically evil. Anger is not intrinsically evil. It's an emotion that God possesses and one which we have to learn how to wield properly. So we covered a lot of ground. It's certainly quite technical, but I hope you can see the foundational principles because we're going to build on that. Um, We're going to take five weeks total and then I'm off to Africa. (laughs) But we're going to deal with this and be hopefully a little more practical as we go in terms of next week I want to deal with guilt. How do we deal with guilt? And then how does... How does men like Freud tell you you should deal with guilt? And they are worlds apart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you and thank you that you have made us whole creatures. That we can not just think rightly, but feel rightly. Um, That we don't have to choose one over the other. And God, despite paganism's attempt at revitalizing all of these ancient heresies, um, I do pray, God, that you would help Christians to think rightly, help us to feel rightly, help us to act rightly, um, help us to to know how to combat um, not just the chaotic thoughts of the world, but how to, how to combat some of the confliction we feel in ourselves. God, we ask and pray for wholeness, that your spirit would be present with us um, and that you would be glorified in our in all of this and we ask this in christ's name amen amen, amen.